Amen. If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me uh, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we're going to look at this topic this morning. Keep busy until Jesus returns. Now, we know that the church at Thessalonica was a young church. Paul had been there for three Sabbath weeks. We picked that up in Acts chapter 17. And as Paul ministered there, uh, the Holy Spirit fell upon uh, the people. And they came uh, to saving grace. And so Paul has to write this beautiful letter because in the excitement of Paul's teachings, the church at Thessalonica, there were those that thought that the rapture of the church had already taken place. There were others that were saying, uh, then if the rapture of the church has taken place, we must be in the seven years of tribulation. There was oppression from Rome. There was oppression from the hierarchy uh, of Judaism. The Judaizers, a sect of Judaism that had come in and were undermining some of Paul's teachings. And so put yourself in, in the frame of mind of the church at Thessalonica. Well, Jesus probably already came and he missed us. And we definitely are suffering persecution, so we're in the tribulation. And now in this second letter, Paul has to address another issue. Because many at church at Thessalonica thought that, you know, Jesus had already come. Well, now Paul's corrected that. And so they're waiting, anticipating for the coming of Christ. And Paul in his teachings was so adamant, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. They assumed it would be in their time now. And we should all be like that. But what was happening here is they began to become idle. They began to just kick back. Well, Jesus is coming. We don't even have to work anymore. Jesus is coming. Uh, let's just sell everything and give everything away. And basically, that's what they were doing. Not all of them, but there were some. And yet Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And those that were continuing to do the work, that God had called them to do. They were sustaining these that were, you know, quitting their jobs and such. It's nothing new. In history, uh, there was a group called the Millerites. And you go and search the, uh, the teachings of the Millerites, and they believed that Jesus was coming in their time. And in fact, Miller gave two different uh, dates that Jesus was coming, and the people were literally going up into the mountains and getting ready. So it's nothing new. And so Paul has to correct this, and he has to come in and encourage them. The Bible teaches us, basically, we are to occupy until Christ comes. There are those that were at the church at Thessalonica. Hey, Jesus is coming. He's coming next week. He's coming next month. He's coming soon. Let's just quit and wait for him. That's not what the Lord teaches. And so Paul's going to give beautiful instruction here. And so let's begin here in verse 1. And as Paul always does, he's coming to this conclusion now, and he mentions prayer. How important it is to pray. And so Paul's going to ask the church at Thessalonica, pray for us. Now what I like about this phrase, he doesn't say pray for me, but he includes Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Pray for us. And this morning, my encouragement to you, uh, the pastors here, the elders here, the deacons here at the church, we're asked one thing, pray for us. Any ministry, any pastor should be asking the same thing, pray for us. And that was Paul's heart. Now, let's begin here. Look at verse 1, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
Paul begins, he says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and that the word of the Lord basically would be glorified just as it is with you. So Paul humbly asks here for the church to pray for him. But he also includes his co-workers. Pray for those with me. Pray for Silas. Pray for Timothy as they were laboring there at Corinth with Paul as this epistle was being written. Back in the conclusion of 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 25, Paul also wrote, brothers and sisters, pray for us. Yet here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul adds, pray specifically, and he says that the word of the Lord may have free course. If you have a King James, that's the correct translation. That the word of the Lord have free course, meaning uh, the word free course speaks of a race. And he says, pray that God's word uh, through us and through others would spread swiftly, rapidly, quickly. That's the sense of the word free course. Because it, think about a race, it's running, it's swift, it's rapid, it's quick. Now, how is this possible that Paul's asking? Only through the power of God's Holy Spirit. And the proof text has been through history. Look how the church has grown in the last 2,000 years since the book of Acts in chapter 2. But Paul doesn't only just pray for free course. He says, pray also that God's word would be glorified, that God's word would be honored, just as you, the church at Thessalonica, have honored. And I have to make mention of this. Look at the dishonor today concerning God, concerning his word, the dishonor to Christians. It was nothing new at the time of the church at Thessalonica, the early church. It's still happening even today. But Paul says, pray for us. I think it's important to note here, as we've mentioned before, men and women that are used by God, and it's nothing that you're not being used by God. But we should all have, you know, a time of prayer. You should have times of prayer. Now, we've given these examples back in the Old Testament. We look at a man by the name of Nehemiah. He was a simple cupbearer, one that tasted the foods and the drinks there of the king. And if somebody was trying to poison the king, Nehemiah was a dead man. But God used this humble man to build, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And if you study the book of Nehemiah, you will find 11 times that he encourages the area of prayer. Right now on Wednesday nights, we're studying in Second Samuel, the life of King David. And we know that David was a treacherous man. He was a man that committed adultery. He was a man that could not build the temple of God. He could not build God's house because he was a man of bloodied hands, the Bible says. The building of the temple was given over to his son Solomon. Yet the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. And here's the key. When you study David's life, it said that David inquired of the Lord. And that word to inquire is that David went before the Lord in prayer. And he would often ask him, Lord, how do we take this battle? Or Lord, should we go into this battle? And if we're going into the battle, show me how to do the battle. And it's amazing to read that the Lord literally tells him, surround him. Or the Lord says, come from both sides. Or the Lord says, go around the back and come in. And watch and see what I can do. Because God told 
uh, Jehoshaphat, the battle's not yours, but it belongs to the Lord. And we come to the New Testament, we see Paul, we see Peter, we see James. Remember James? You look at it, historically the life of James, he was called camel knees because he was a man of prayer. And so we see men, women, listen to this. Mary Magdalene in the New Testament, she always intrigues me. I want to meet her when I get to heaven. This woman had seven demons that Jesus had cast out of her. This woman, when Jesus rose from the dead, she was the first one that saw him. She saw the risen Christ. Men, you remember where they were? The men were hiding. They were hiding behind locked doors. But you take this woman. I, it doesn't mention her prayer life. But I have to believe that Mary Magdalene was a woman of prayer. It is so beautiful. And so God calls us to prayer. And this is what he's telling the church at Thessalonica. He goes into the second part of the prayer. Look at verse 2. And that we may be delivered. Pray that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith. I like that. So Paul says, pray that we may be delivered. The word is rescued. Uh, from unreasonable men. The Greek is saying, men who are out of place. Here Paul speaks of these false prophets, false teachers, false evangelists, men who are out of place. Listen, doctrinally, these types are wicked. The word is hurtful, evildoers. Why? Because they uh, have no true faith of God, no true faith of God's word. They're not Christian. That's what Paul's saying here. Just because you call yourself a Christian or you have a Christian ministry does not make you or me a Christian. But God sees the heart of man. I just mentioned King David. This guy was a sinner. But the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. You see, when David repented, read Psalm 51. Uh, that was the repentance psalm of the sin with Bathsheba. When David repented, David repented. When David tore his clothes and put sackcloth and ashes, he meant business. And those of us that are studying on Wednesday night, when we came to King Saul, when he repented, he repented, he was caught. And so there's a difference. And so are you truly born again of the Holy Spirit? Some of these that were wicked men, some of these that were undermining the ministry of Paul, the ministry there at Thessalonica, and so Paul says, deliver. Pray that God delivers us from these unreasonable and wicked men. They have no faith. It's still today. We see that today. And so Paul continues. Look at verse 3 now. But the Lord is faithful. You see, there are men and women out there that have no faith. And maybe we can lack in faith. We see where Abraham had lapses of faith in the Old Testament. I mean, this is nothing new. David, he had lapses of faith where he runs to, you know, the enemy's camp. And so Paul says here, but the Lord is faithful. I like that. Even when I'm faithless and you're faithless, there's times I believe I can move a mountain with my faith. And there's other times when, you know, I'm faithless. I become just like Thomas doubting. And so do you. And so Paul says here, but the Lord is faithful. I like that. 
and he's going to establish you. He's speaking to the church at Thessalonica, and he's going to guard you from the evil one. Now, the translation could be the evil one, meaning Satan, his demonic realm, but it can also mean evil men, evil women. There will always be evil and evil men in the world. But God, again, here, verse 3, he is faithful. The word that he is faithful. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Watch what God can do when we continue to be faithful in him. And then Paul says, he's the one that's going to establish you. Listen to the word to establish. He, it means to confirm you. The other translation, it means to make a covenant with you. God makes his vow. He makes his stance with you when you come to saving grace. There's a beautiful teaching in Ephesians chapter 1. But I want to just read verse 13 with you. The Bible tells us that when we come to saving grace, we are saved by faith through grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then God seals us. In verse 13, he says that he seals us with the Holy Spirit of promise. I like that. Even though sometimes we're faithless, and you know, we're just like, Lord, I'm defeated here. I have nowhere else to go, Lord. I have no more to draw from. The Bible says that God has confirmed in our hearts that we are saved. God has confirmed in our hearts that we are one of his. And he has placed that seal of approval. And that seal is the Holy Spirit in my life and in your life. And then he says, he seals us with the Holy Spirit. And here in verse 3, to guard you and to keep you to protect you from this evil one. The King James says, to keep you from evil. And so God is the one that keeps us from sin, and he keeps us from sinners. I believe he also keeps us from the satanic realm. He also keeps us from the demonic realm. And so we have to pray. Remember in the book of Jude that Michael the archangel, when he was uh, did not bring a railing accusation against Satan, but he said, the Lord rebuked you. And I think sometimes we need to take heed to that. The Lord rebuke you. And so we have to stand firm on God's promises. Oh, the enemy wants to take you down. This is what was happening to the church at Thessalonica. God has established you. He's confirmed that promise of his love, his grace, his mercy, his saving power in your life. Oh, there's going to be the times of trials and tribulations. There's going to be the times uh, the attacks are going to come, even from within the church. These Judaizers were right inside the church. Listen, Jesus is fine, but you also need to follow uh, the laws of Moses. And yet, if you study the book of Galatians, Jesus said, you've been set free, as Paul writes through the Holy Spirit. Now, he continues his prayer. Look at verse 4. And we have this confidence when I think of the word confidence, it quickly reminds me of God's assurance. We have this confidence in the Lord concerning you, the church at Thessalonica, but concerning you this morning here, uh, the saints at Calvary Chapel. He says, both that you do and will do the things that we command you. Now, I don't want you to think that Paul is giving a military command here, but it's a command of grace, if you may. Now, basically, verse 4, you are seeing Paul's heart here. He says, but in Christ, 
we have this very confidence in him concerning you, the church of Thessalonica. The Greek is saying we have this assurance, the word confidence. We have this trust, the word confidence. We have this faith. Again, the word confidence, but I like Vine's dictionary. This word confidence, we have this persuasion. Not in man, but in Christ Jesus. Paul says, don't put your trust in man. We've shared that many times here at the chapel. You know, praise the Lord that God gives us pastors and teachers, elders and deacons. But your trust, your faith must be in the Lord. Because at any time, man can fail you. At any time, I could fail you. One of the pastors can fail you. We have to trust God. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise, church. A promise. Paul was assured here in verse 4, in his own heart, that the Thessalonians, listen, were practicing the things that we commanded you. Now, the word to command in the Greek, the things that we instructed you in, the things that the messages that we brought to you. And Paul was believing that they're going to obey, but there's always going to be those that don't obey. And then Paul says, and that you always will obey these messages, these instructions, these oracles of God, his word, not Paul. Now, Paul was the writer, but the Holy Spirit's giving the instruction here. So not man, but believe because the Holy Spirit is teaching you. Paul trusted God. Listen, he didn't trust the church at Thessalonica. Now, don't misunderstand me. He loved them. And in a sense, listen, I don't trust you. I have to trust God that he's going to work in and through you. You can't trust me, but you have to trust God that he's going to work in and through me. That's the key. And so this is what Paul is saying here so beautifully. Trust in the Lord. The messages, the instructions that Paul was bringing were from the Lord. Now, I want you to turn to a passage. We're going to look at this. Go to Psalm 118 with me. And I want you to just hang there for a minute. But I was having a great time with Psalm 118. I would encourage you, go home tonight, this afternoon. Read it. Go over it. It's a beautiful psalm, about 29 verses. If you know, you have a study Bible, it should show you. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. They're called the Hallel Psalms. And the Hallel Psalms, basically, they were the Alleluia Psalms. And these Psalms from 113 to 118 were generally sung as they were going up to the temple. And I want you to just think of the beauty of just going up to the temple, a group of people. And they were just reciting as a psalm because that's what the Psalms are. They were songs. And, and then they would respond. His mercies endure forever. But this place here of, of just trusting God, worshiping God in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulation. And so David here is writing this beautiful psalm, and it's a psalm of mercy. Now, I want to just touch on verses 8 and 9, because Paul is speaking here in verse 4 of Second Thessalonians chapter 3. These commands that he was giving and this confidence, this assurance that Paul had, not in the Thessalonians, but in Christ. And I like this. Look at verse 8, Psalm 118. 
He says it is better to trust in the Lord than to put your confidence or your assurance, your trust or your faith in man. That's what he's saying. Then he takes it a step further. He uses the word princess. And so that speaks of the authorities over you. It speaks of those that would be the higher up, such as Paul. Those that would be the apostolic teachers. Those that would be the pastors, the elders, the deacons. But notice what he says. It is better again to trust the Lord than to put your confidence in these that have authority over you, these princesses. And so again, I appreciate the love and the compassion and the grace that you have towards me, your pastor, and Pastor Jeff, Pastor Jay. Praise the Lord, the, you know, Ray comes and does worship and prays. You know, and we just have this love. But you can't trust us. You have to trust the Lord. Because at any time, any one of us, God forbid, but we could fail you. Oh, you have to trust the Lord. That's what Paul's saying here. And then, yet Paul takes it further. Look at verse 5 now. He says this conclusion of his prayer. Now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. I like this. Paul's prayer for the church at Thessalonica. This beautiful conclusion. May our Lord, and he uses the word to direct you. May our Lord direct you. May he guide you. May he lead you. May he teach you. Your hearts into his agape love into the patience of Jesus Christ, his love, his patience. Now, the word patience is always a hard one. James chapter 1, verses, I believe it's verses, what, 2 and 3 there. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And then James encourages it because God's building patience in. If you've been a Christian, we've shared this many times. If you've been a Christian long enough, the word patience, you go, oh, man, I don't want to hear it. Because if I'm going to be praying for patience, God's going to send trials. God's going to test me. Go back to Matthew chapter 4 on your own and and study uh, before Jesus came into his ministry. The Bible says he was tested. He was tempted. He was tried by Satan, by Lucifer himself. And what's neat about Jesus' temptations, now, we know that he's God, but he was also all man. That's the incarnation of Jesus. We know that those three temptations, each time Jesus could have come back and rebuked them as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. But he said, it is written. Study that. Three times it is written, it is written, it is written. He always went back to the Word of God where we should go back uh, to the Word of God. Be careful where you're like some of the charismatics that say, I'm going to rebuke Satan right now. You have no power, no authority. But the Lord rebuked you. That's what Michael the archangel said. But through the trial, listen, he's building patience. If you look at that Greek word, so beautifully breaks down. God, through the trial, is building endurance in your life. He's building strength and stamina. He's building perseverance. And here's the best one. He's building character in your life and my life. And if you're like me, Lord, I got got enough character, man. Come on. Oh, no, God's not finished with you because he's not finished with me. And we have to have a teachable spirit. 
And so here Paul is so beautifully that he's encouraging the church at Thessalonica. Now all of this is going to be done through God's Holy Spirit. In John chapter 16, verse 13, listen to it. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. Beautiful, beautiful statement. The Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. We know that the Holy Spirit convicts us. We know that the Holy Spirit brings all remembrance to my mind and to my heart. But the Holy Spirit is my teacher. The Holy Spirit leads me and guides me into all truth. And so Paul's encouraging the church at Thessalonica. Be encouraged. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into his patience. Through Christ, we learn these things. And remember, the church of Thessalonica were suffering greatly. There was great persecution upon them. And Paul reminds us over and over, if Jesus suffered, we're going to suffer. If Paul suffered, we're going to suffer. And so now we come into verse 6. From verse 6 to verse 15, Paul warns the church of Thessalonica. He's coming to the conclusion of the letter. He warns them concerning idleness. And here's the topic of our teaching. We are to keep busy until Jesus returns. And so there were those at Thessalonica, well, Jesus is coming. Let's just quit our jobs. Well, Jesus is coming. Let's just give everything away. There are Christians that do that. Again, uh, go, you know, to your PC and then just Google Millerites. You'll be surprised. They had such a, a following. And then the first year that Jesus did not return, Miller revised everything. He said he's coming next year. And there's a people again following. It's nothing new, church. Look at verse 6 now. But we command you. He comes back to that word command. He says, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw. Listen to the encouragement here. From every brother. And that stunned me. Those that were causing the infractions, Paul calls them a brother. He says, who walk disorderly and not according to the tradition or the oracles which he received from us. Again, as he exhorted in verse 4, we command you, or we charge you. Here is our message. Remember, instructions or message to the brethren. We pray in Jesus' name that you would withdraw from some of these. Listen to the word withdraw. You would avoid them. You would refrain from them. That you would stand fast from them. But he calls them a brother in Christ. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul also calls this gentleman a brother. He was having a sexual relationship with his stepmom. But something interesting there. Paul says, hand him over to Satan. But yet he called him a brother. Interesting. <laughs> Is there such a word as a carnal Christian, the word carnal, fleshly. And yet the Corinthian church, Paul called them carnal Christians. Interesting. Because we'll all fall prey to that at one time or another. So he calls these brothers in Christ, and he says, withdraw from them. Withdraw from these. Avoid those uh, that walk <laughs> uh, disorderly among you. 
In other words, that they were living untruly to God's laws, untruly to the ordinances of the teachings of Paul and of the church. And they were doing their own thing. Now, we've studied this before. When we speak of Christian walk, the word walk means our manner of life. And so he says here, their manner of life, which was disorderly. This is the type of walk that they had. Those who were living unruly, that's the word disorderly. And so Paul's saying, have nothing to do with them. Refrain from them. Now, if you go back to the book of Acts on your own, and as you study the book of Acts, they were living, a lot of them, in a type of communal type living. And basically, in the early church, they were giving away everything and sustaining so many people. Just They were so giving. But they began to give too much. They gave so much that when Paul went to the Gentile circuit, he was collecting money for the Jerusalem church that should have had plenty of money. And he brought back finances for them. And so many scholars believe that the church at Thessalonica was falling trap also, like the early church, to this type of communal living. Well, let's just join the commune. Let's just be hippies. Let's just believe in Christ. Let's have our Bible and eat some oats and we'll be okay. Well, they were giving everything away. But what was happening, it was causing those that had and those that were working to take care of them. And they were able to work. They were strong in mind and body. And so Paul's rebuking this. Now, the church has the scriptures to govern by. I want you to turn to a passage that Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa uh, leaned on many, many years ago and has passed this on to all the Calvaries. Go to the book of Acts chapter 2 and basically just verse 42. Back when Chuck was beginning the ministry, the Lord laid this on his heart and he says, this is what I want you to develop the ministry. And basically when you go to a Calvary Chapel, uh, this format should be part of it. It should be fourfold in the ministry. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, I'm going to read out of the NIV. And there's four positions that the church must take. Paul begins here, or this is Luke the writer in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so there's the fourfold message. That's what the church should be about. Number one, we teach the Word of God. We are to receive the Word of God. And then we are to make application of the Word of God. Secondly, we are to fellowship with the brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in the early church, they had what they called the agape feast. And they would get together at least once a week, and everybody would gather and bring in all their foods, and everybody partook. And the beautiful part, there was those that were poor and couldn't bring much, and there were those that had, and they would bring plenty. But they were also, in partaking of the agape feast, they were drinking wine. And so when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul has to correct uh, the agape feast. He says, some of you are coming to the communion table intoxicated. And it should not be. Oh, praise the Lord. Let's pour some more, you know, Christian brothers, right? 
or blue nun. There's ways to get around these things. I know how it works. Take a little wine for your stomachs. I love that one. Oh, I'm hurting today. And take a little wine, not a gallon. But we're good to read into these things. We are to fellowship. The word is koinonia. This is what we do in the kinships. This is what we do here on Sunday mornings and uh, we do on Wednesday nights. This is what we're going to do in the men and women's breakfast. This is what you do right after the service and, and the ushers are telling you there's coffee and donuts in the bookstore. And, and fellowship is beautiful. Encouraging one another. Fellowshipping because we have the same Redeemer, which is Christ. And then thirdly, the breaking of bread in communion. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in the communion table, Paul says, we are to remember the Lord's death until he returns for his church. This was communion. Not that the actual body and blood took over in the bread and the wine. That's transubstantiation. It's not what it's taught. But that we do this in remembrance. Lord, your body that was beaten for me. Lord, your blood that was shed for me at Calvary. We do this in remembrance of you until his return. And it's a beautiful picture. Now, dads, let me encourage you. I'm one of those pastors that will tell you, hey, the Bible says you're the prophet, priest, and king of the home. You don't have to wait for Pastor Bob, Pastor Jeff, or Pastor Jay to come and have communion. You can break bread together with your family. There's nothing special that has to be done, but you're breaking bread. And you tell your kids. We instructed our kids from way back when they were youngsters. And we broke bread. Just My wife would get a piece of bread. And then we would get some juice out of the fridge and put it in a glass. And, and we would read the passages of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And the breaking of bread, communion, koinonia, fellowship, oneness. And so this was the third one. Now the fourth one. We are to partake of prayer. So important prayer. We spoke of Nehemiah, a man of prayer, 11 times in his book. We spoke of David, man of prayer. He inquired of the Lord. I love that. Here's Paul, man of prayer. Peter, man of prayer. I hope and pray this morning that each one of us have a time. Husbands, wives, you should be praying as, as a team, as a husband, wife. One of the joys my wife and I have for many, many years is praying with each other. Moms, dads, you should be praying for your children. Mom, if dad's not taking the initiative, he's not taking the reins, then you do it. Pray for our children. Pray for your marriages. Pray for the things that are out there, the elements of this world. I hope and pray that you do have individual prayer and that you we have corporate prayer. This morning, Ray opens in prayer. Pastor Jeff comes up, and he opens in prayer. I come up, and I'll open in prayer. We conclude with prayer. It's corporate prayer. We try to gather here on Fridays and at 10 o'clock in the morning, a time of prayer. And we've asked you, if you can't be here, most of you have to work. Pray for us. Ask the Lord to bless. And so look at the fourfold message. We are to have doctrinal teachings in the church 
We are to have fellowship. That's part of the body of Christ. We are to break bread, uh, the communion table. And then lastly, we are to have prayer. Prayer. And so Paul's encouraging uh, the church at Thessalonica. Now look at verse 7, though. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Bob. You just said, you know, follow Jesus. Yes, I did. And I'm going to tell you again, follow Jesus. But listen to Paul's heart. He did it for a reason. He did it for a purpose. For you yourselves know, he's telling the church of Thessalonica, he says, how you ought to follow us, for we, he says, were not disorderly among you. The word ought is better, the stronger word in the Greek. You must follow us. Paul could say this because he, Silas and Timothy, were following the Lord. The word to follow is very strong here. To imitate us. It comes from the Greek word mimos, and we get our English word to mimic. Copy us because we copy Jesus. And finally, because we were never disorderly among you, unruly biblically before you. That's what Paul is saying. And this is why Paul could give them the example. See, many of them were following these disorderly people. Paul says, mimic our example of Christ. Now, moms and dads, let me encourage you here this morning. And if you're an older brother or an older sister, let me encourage you this morning. There are those that follow us. Mom and dad, your children follow your lead. Older brother, older sister, I'm an older, older son. I'm an older brother. And so my siblings, my brothers and sisters, they still follow my direction. We have to have a leader. And man, we better be leading them through Christ. The example of Christ. Mimic me because I mimic Christ. That's what Paul is saying. The NASB, the NIV, great translations. Follow our examples. Paul could say that because his example was following Christ. Hmm. Now, moms and dads, our kids see us. Our kids see us. Our kids mimic us. I don't know if you've ever heard Gail Irwin's story. He, if you ever see Gail Irwin, he wears suspenders all the time. Never wears a belt. He says his pants won't stay up. They'll fall. So he wears a belt. I think he was born with suspenders. So he has his belt loops. And one day he's teaching. He goes, you know, about this area of mimic me. And he doesn't even know where he picked up this habit. But he has a habit of this thumb and that thumb. And he puts them in the first loops. And he kind of rocks back and forth. His wife told him, you've been doing that for years. And he didn't realize it until one day his wife hits him in the, in the side and says, look at your son. His 10-year-old son sitting two feet from him, he sees his dad and he goes. And he sees the other hand, he looks. And then all of a sudden you got two people swaying. And he says, I taught him absolutely a worthless thing. And you see, that's the key. Moms, dads, what do the kids see us doing? Do they see us praying? Do they see us arguing and fighting? Do they hear us cursing? Do they see us anger? Don't be looking at each other. I don't want to see you guys looking at each other. <laughs> you see everything from up here, I tell you. Do they see you angry? Do they see you with your 
temper tantrums. It is so important to be an example. Mimic me because I mimic Christ. That's what Paul was saying. Dads, we are called the prophet, priest, king of the home. Man, lead your wife, lead your children to Christ. This day, after all these years, the kids know. They grew up in our, in our home. They knew that we prayed. They knew that prayer is the answer. And maybe they're not at home, but they'll call. Mom, Dad, pray for us. I'm going through this. We're going through this. Pray for us. Man, it's beautiful to see that. Let's leave them some good heritage. Not junk that we see so much of. And so Paul, in this beautiful words, copy me because I copy Christ. I like that. Now look at verse 8. And he comes to those that were uh, idle, those that were not doing. Paul says, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor. And we toiled in this labor, literally, night and day, that we might not be a burden to any one of you there at the church at Thessalonica. And so Paul's giving testimony here. We paid for what we bought, and we worked with our own hands that we might have money uh, to buy what was our needs, and we did this by working day and night. Remember, we know, according to the book of Acts, Paul was a tent maker by trade. Paul says, we, Silas and Timothy here, did not want to be a burden to you. Listen to the, the King James says, we, don't, we do not want to be chargeable to you. But the Greek is saying, we did not want to place any burden of any kind on anyone at Thessalonica. Oh, I love that. Now, as I came to this verse, I wrote this footnote down. Imagine today if radio and TV preachers and their ministries were to take heed uh, to what the Holy Spirit is teaching here. You see, so many times when I turn on the radio, so many times when I turn on uh, the tele-evangelists, so many times when I turn on TV ministries, the first thing I hear is become a partner with us. Sow a seed into this ministry. In fact, this week I received an email from a well-known ministry, got a good ministry. The email was from the wife, not the husband. And she said, this week my husband is celebrating 62 years. He's going to be 62 years old. I'm asking you if you were to sow a birthday seed of $62 in his name to this ministry. My flesh, I wanted to go up in the closet and pull down the Monopoly game. I say, here, you can keep this $500 marker. Sow it to your ministry. And, and, you know, I'm being flippant here, but too many times they're so busy fleecing the flock. Hey, when I turned certain age, did anybody send you money or me money? No. And you should not ask for that. Now, I don't have a problem. You want to support the ministry, then support it. But when they start to use antics on you, oh, it's his birthday and he's not home. And I'll tell you what, they, they prey upon the elderly. I speak from experience. My mom, she has everything at home. Look, look what I bought, Jerusalem rocks. Oh, mom, 
Those aren't Jerusalem rocks. Those are from Irwindale in Southern California. It's Rock City there. Oh, look at I got some oil from Jerusalem. I go, Mom, that's Crisco. Come on. Oh, look, I bought this holy water. Mom, it's tap water. They rip you off. Any of you ever received a prayer rug? They'll send them out. It's in paper. It's not a rug. It's paper. And there's a big circle on it. I've, I've had some of those. And you're supposed to take your wallet out and pray around the circle. And when the Holy Spirit stops you, then you send to that ministry, which is their ministry. Interesting. You know what? Take that holy rug, make a kite out of it, and, you know, fly it. That's what needs to be done. But be careful. Paul says, we took nothing from you. Nothing. I like that. Look at verse 9. Not because we do not have the authority. Paul takes it back. There's nothing wrong with a minister getting a salary, getting a wage. He says, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example, he says, of how you should follow us. Again, you can't, you know, deny Paul's heart here. Paul says we have the apostolic authority to ask for financial help from the church. But our desire, we choose to be those examples how you should follow. Imitate us, not by asking, but by trusting God. And we know that in Acts chapter 18, Paul was building tents with Aquila and Priscilla. Paul would work day and night. In fact, the historians tell us that he would literally make tents during the day and he preached at night. Paul didn't trust men. He trusted God. Now what's interesting, as the church at, at Philippi, they supported Paul's ministry. That was the only church that we know of. Because when you go to the Philippian letter, at the conclusion, Paul says, thank you. But Paul did not solicit. When I preach here, and I go to another ministry, and they call me to teach, preach, and share, I never ask them for anything. We go in the goodness of God because my salary comes from the church here. And that's the way all pastors should be. And it's important to see that now there are honorariums, there are gifts, but you don't ask, you don't solicit. You don't tell them what size suit you wear. Well, you know, it's a 42 long and it's kind of wore out. Oh, look how the Lord blessed me. No, you told them. Be careful with that. Now, Paul trusted God. He was trying to convey this to the church at Thessalonica. Trust the Lord. There's a beautiful teaching in Genesis chapter 22, verse 14. Abraham went up to sacrifice his son, his only son. And then God held him back. He wanted to see Abraham's heart. He was ready to plunge the knife uh, into Isaac. And then finally, Isaac even says, when he was off the altar, where's the sacrifice? He says, God will provide. Just then, there was a, a ram caught in the thicket. And he took that ram and he sacrificed him unto the Lord. And there in verse 14, Genesis 22, call Paul, excuse me, Abraham called this place Jehovah-Jireh. God, my provider. And church, that is so important for us, for the body of Christ. 
and should be so important to you. God is my provider, not man. Oh, I might go to White Sands or I might go to the university or I might work just the factory. I might work in the fields, whatever it might be. But your money comes from the Lord. Trust the Lord. So though Paul goes on to verse 10 now. For even when we were with you, listen, when we were with you just short three weeks, he says, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Radical statement. And if you're not going to work, don't eat then. Paul is hitting, you know, where the rubber meets the road here. Now, remember we shared with all of you, Paul says, it was a command. It was a charge. It was an instruction. It was the messages. If you do not work, you do not eat. There's an old saying that I heard years ago, and I, I don't know where I got it. Maybe some of you heard it. Idle hands become the devil's workshop, and it's so true. Man, when you're not doing, your mind works. And you're able to conjure, well, I think I'll do this, I think I'll do that. Idle hands become the devil's workshop. Paul was not speaking to those who could not work because of some physical thing, but to those who refused to work. Because Jesus was so soon to return. He was so soon to return. I told you the story and I'll tell it again. Back in 1982, we're in Southern California. The planets were lining up. We're young Christians. We're about two, three years in the Lord. And because the planets were lining up, I never forgot it. The centrifugal force, everybody was saying, oh, it's going to cause the rapture of the church. Where did that come from? But it spread like wildfire. And then there at our Calvary Chapel, all of a sudden I was hearing these little tidbits. Hey, Jesus is coming, man. 1982, the planets are lining up. If the rapture of the church is coming, let's leave this world in debt. And people were getting <laughs> cards and maxing them out. Hey, let's go buy a car. Let's go buy a house. And you know what? Some of those people today, they're still paying for those cards. Occupy till Jesus comes. What a bad testimony, isn't it? Look at verse 11 now. For we hear that there are some uh, who walk among you. And again, it goes back to the word uh, in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Not only are they idle, they quit working, but now they become busybodies. Paul returns to the main focus. There were those at the church at Thessalonica, purposely they walked in this manner of life, in this disorderly manner, unruly biblical manner of their way of life, but have become now busybodies in the church. And I don't think we have to really go into, you know, the translation of a busybody, but one that meddles around in others' affairs. Back in Southern California, we had lived in a, in a cul-de-sac, and there was about, I don't know, 10, 15 houses there. And it kind of, you know, that horseshoe effect, and we kind of lived in the middle. And I worked pretty much every Saturday, this particular Saturday, you know, I was home, so, you know, put up the garage door and, you know, bring out the lawnmower and do the things that needed to be done around the house. But I noticed this gentleman down the corner there, and he seemed to be going not house to house, garage to garage. Wanted to see what new toys the guys had. Well, look at my push mower. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at that. And he was coming. I, I, I don't like busybodies. And I don't like people bothering me on Saturday. Let me do what I need to do. 
I seen him coming. He's two doors down, so I shut the garage door down. You know that he had the audacity? Hey, Bob, I, I know you're in there. What are you doing? Come on out. I'm not here. <laughs> but there were busy bodies in the early church. There's busy bodies today. Back in Southern California, my father-in-law was notorious for this. He liked to talk in the front yard with his friends. You know, they would come. Well, they had a neighbor named Jenny. And if your name's Jenny, forgive me. But Jenny was the, as soon as she saw somebody in the front yard, you, you'd see the curtain. You, you know some of those? You see the curtain. <laughs> My father-in-law goes, Jenny, put that curtain back. Poof, the curtain would go back. <laughs> I, I think she learned how to read lips. But be careful with busybodies. Not only were they idle, but they became busybodies. And Paul talks about that through his letters. Notice verse 12. Now those who are such, these idle, those that are idle and those that are busybodies, he says, and, and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Listen, to those busybodies, in Jesus' name, Paul says, we exhort you. Remember the word, we command you. We give you instruction. We give you a message. Get a job. Or get back your old job. Work in quietness. Now what he's saying there, stop being a busybody, a tattletaler, one that takes one thing to another thing. He goes, stop it. Work with your hands. And you know when you work hard, when you come home, you don't have time. But the time for your family and the time to rest. In Luke chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus said that the workman is worthy of his hire or her hire. And so the Bible teaches us eight hours of work, eight hours of pay. But listen to Paul's encouragement to those that were not idle and to those that were not busybodies. In verse 13, but as for you, he says, brethren, do not grow weary. I like that. In doing good. Keep doing what you're doing. Those of you who are not idle, who are not busybody, praise the Lord for you. Don't grow weary. The word is faint-hearted. Remember some of them at the church there. And we missed the rapture. No, no, you didn't. Now we're right in the middle of the tribulation. No, you're not. We are caring for those that quit their jobs. And so maybe they were becoming weary in that. And so Paul's encouraging those that have quit their job, go back to work. And those of you that are caring, those of you that are doing, keep doing it. Some of you that have been Christian for a long time, you understand. You know, just like, what do I, man, I've been a Christian so long, and it's almost routine. Just keep doing it. Keep pressing towards that mark, which is Christ. Don't be content with your own salvation. There are so many others out there that are not saved especially some of our family, friends, and loved ones. Don't become faint-hearted. Look at verse 14. Then he says that if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, this letter, look at the word he uses here, note them. Note that person and do not keep company with him or with her that they may be ashamed. The word to note them is literally saying, mark them in the body of Christ. Those who disobey this 
first letter and this second letter to the Thessalonians. And then he says this harsh word. Don't even fellowship with them that he or she may be ashamed. The word is that they would be, become disrespectful. They're not serving the Lord. They're not doing what God's called them to do. Don't acknowledge them. These are radical statements. And I will add to this, hand them over to God. In contrast to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, hand that brother over to Satan. You know, I've never made that kind of prayer. I hope you never have either. Now, my purpose, and if I see a brother that's slacking, a sister that's slacking, Lord, take care of them, Lord. Lord, I give them over to you. My brother, Lord, I give them over to you. My sister, I give them over to you, Lord. I can't, you know, hand them over to Satan. That's what Paul did, that he would have them for a season. And that's a prayer. And so Paul says, those that don't obey this word, they become shameful. Look at verse 15. But yet, he says, yet do not count him as an enemy. I like that. But admonish him as a brother, as a sister in the Lord. Church, be careful. We're very quick to, you know, count them out. They left the church. They're my enemy. Count them out. No, Paul says, admonish them. The opportunity comes up. Encourage them. Minister to them. The word to admonish, caution them. Listen, brother. Listen, sister. What you're doing is wrong. Let me share it with you in love. It usually does not receive well, but do it with love. Caution them. Warn them. Reprove them. Rebuke them. In Jesus' name. Hmm. Mark this down. In Jude, there's only one chapter, verse 23. Jude says some of them you're going to pull out of the fire. You know the prodigal son, the story? The dad never gave up. The other brother did, but dad never gave up. And the prodigal son came back. I pray and I hope that if I ever, you know, backslide, I ever uh, apostate, that God would not give up on me and you would not give up on me. That's exactly what you need to do when you see somebody. Ah, they've gone by the wayside. No, let's pray for them. Let's encourage them back into the kingdom of God. Now, Paul comes to the conclusion here. It's called the benediction and the conclusion of the epistle, verses 16 through 18. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. Now, only in Jesus, we know this, only in Jesus do we have eternal peace, not the peace of the world, but the peace of God. And the translation there, the peace is the quietness and the rest that we find in Christ. Listen, even through the trials. Verse 17, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle. So I write. Now back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, there were those that Paul made reference to that were forgeries. This letter came from Paul. We already went through the tribulation. Or we went through the rapture, now we're in the tribulation. Paul says, those aren't my letters, but this one is. When you receive an epistle from me, it's going to have my conclusion, my signature, my John Hancock, as they say. And then Paul concludes now. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So be it. 
the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. And Paul's love and compassion and grace towards the church at Thessalonica. He had such a concern for them. He had such a drive for them. They were a young church. There were certain little things that Paul had to straighten out. But here in this last chapter, idleness and busybodies, it's not part of the body of Christ. The communal type living did not work. We are to keep busy until the Lord comes. You know that. Paul says, you know that. And so church, let's keep keeping on it as they say. Let's stand. We'll end with a word of prayer. We're going to look into 1 Timothy. Father, thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace, your love and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for your precious word that will not come back void. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you give us, Lord, even the trials and the tribulations and the hardships, because you're teaching us, Lord. And Father, bless your people here this morning. And maybe there's somebody here that's never made a commitment to you. I pray that they would not leave here without surrendering to you. And with every eye closed, every head bowed, I want to just give you that quick opportunity. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never received Christ. And before you leave, I'm just going to ask you, if you'd like Jesus to come into your life, I'll say a simple prayer of faith with you. Anybody here this morning, would you please raise your hand and I'll say a quick prayer of faith. Anybody here? I see your hand in the back. Praise the Lord. Anybody else would like to receive Christ this morning? Praise God. Then let's pray for this young man. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace and your love and your mercy, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word that will not come back void. Thank you for your word that guides us, that leads us, that directs us in the path of righteousness. Lord, thank you for this young man that raised his hand unto you, Lord. Lord, as he confesses his sin to you, forgive him, Lord. Cleanse him. Wash him. Forgive him of his sins, past, present, and future. And Lord, come into his life. Tabernacle within him, Lord. Give him the power of the Holy Spirit to do your will, Lord. And Father, we pray for the rest of the body of Christ. Encourage our hearts, Lord, in the midst of sometimes turmoil in our own lives, wondering why this might be happening in my life. Why? Lord, strengthen us. Remind us, Lord, how much you love us, how much you care for us. Father, bless your people, and it's in Jesus' name. We pray and we all agree by saying amen.